The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers, episode 97. Today, we have a very special guest. We have S.A. Bradley. He's the creator of Hellbent for Horror and the author of Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Now, this is awesome. I, I was really intrigued by your book because for the longest time, I didn't even want to call myself a horror author. Um, I write in, you know, sub, like sci-fi, suspense, horror, but all of them definitely have horror elements. Uh, but I think I was kind of maybe embarrassed by that, um, you know, and I, and I kind of always looked down on horror, even though I read it, it was always like, oh, that's, you know, Stephen King or whatever else it's like, is <laughs> not real literature. Um, right. so yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, how it can actually make someone happy and healthy. Cause then maybe I'll feel better about spreading it. You know, I always feel like I'm spreading, you know, I want to get my stuff out there, but, um, right. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention too, uh, you're kind enough to lend us one of your short stories, which we're going to play at the end of this. So that's another thing I want to talk to you about is how much do you enjoy writing fiction, uh, is that a passion or do you prefer nonfiction? Um, but let's let's start out with your book and, you know, how does horror make you happy and healthy? Oh, great. Uh, thanks for all the questions. I mean, that's a lot of great stuff. Uh, you know, when I talk about it being happy and healthy, it's like I'm not saying it's going to cure your lumbago and I'm not saying that you should get off your meds and watch Friday the 13th marathons. But I but I say that horror is uh, has the ability to talk about the itches that we need scratch that we can't really articulate. So I, I've had a lot of issues over the years. I find that a lot of horror fans are having a great second act. They had a pretty crappy first act. They had some kind of thing that happened to them uh, and they found horror as a way to kind of calm themselves down or get them, uh, get themselves to be able to embrace certain things. So there's a psychoanalyst, Carl Jung and Jung talked all about the shadow self. And so the shadow self is is this part that everybody has uh, that we don't like to talk about. That is the most primal aspects of us. Uh, the darkest thoughts are there. And what uh, Jung said is, you know, you have to address that shadow self. You don't want to live through it all the time. But if you don't look at it, it's like a, a spoiled brat kid. It's going to get your attention sooner or later. And that's when you get on TMZ and stuff for embezzling millions of dollars, whatever, because you're basically, you're, you're not taking in and allowing yourself to, to be a full human being. Some of us out there like to think that there's good emotions and bad emotions. Emotions are emotions. What we do with them, that's the big deal. How I respond to those emotions is a big deal. And so horror for me is it helps on the little things. Uh, there were like three times in my life where it could have been anything, but it ended up being horror. It was the thing that kind of helped me get over uh, a divorce or uh, it was my parents' divorce when I was like eight. Uh, and we were in this weird religious cult. It was really messed wow. up. Uh, and then uh, getting out of the military, there was a time when I just, there was a moment and I don't know why, but I could have been Travis Bickle. I could have went down that path. I was just going off the radar and I was able to start communicating with people again because of movies. And then uh, world's fantastic. I'm working in Silicon Valley and stuff, but I just feel dead. 
and I go to a horror convention, it's like, that's a life changing moment because I get to speak to passion. And I think one of the things is we lose our sense of play as adults. Uh, we uh, lose our passion. We uh, have things like what you said. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not ashamed of being a horror fan. And we talk about it like somebody found our old porn stash. And it's just a, a weird thing that we've got. And it's, it's, it's part of that thing of endor endorsing those emotions that some people think are bad. But it really is this almost like a primal scream inside of us that's healthy. I have a safe handshake with my my uh, shadow self whenever I'm watching a horror movie. I'm able to make the distinction between reality and what's, uh, what's fiction. But it is also this thing where if I was to go to a psychiatrist and he goes, what's wrong with you? Unless I know exactly what's wrong with me, he's going to have to search for a while. It's like, Bleh. I think horror works like music. You can listen to music and one note can change your your mind on something it can change your attitude uh, i always think of like uh it's an old song the beatles a hard day's night just has this jung, and it's just this one chord but when you hear it you can't help but stop and go what's that it takes you out of whatever you're in and it doesn't have to go through this it goes right to the core of you your gut and so I think that horror allows you to accept a part of yourself that's kind of dark, uh, lets you find a community. I found a whole bunch of people who have the same power and, and passion, and they're not suicidal. <laughs> they're actually having fun with life. Uh, it gives me my sense of play, uh, and it allows me to be creative in a way. And if you have all of those things in your life, you have a pretty good, happy, and healthy life. So that's where I go with that. And uh, you talk about one of my pet projects, my pet peeves, my, my passions is trying to get people to admit that they like horror. That I often think that it has very little to do with horror itself. It has to do with horror fans. They don't like me. They don't like my type. <laughs> they see that and they go, I can't like what that guy likes. It's like, oh my gosh. And I think that there's some truth to that. But I also think that people assume that horror is all the one thing that they can't stand. When I go to conventions or if I go to say even better, like podcast conventions where everybody's not a horror fan, half the people are there are doing real estate podcasts and the other half are doing comedy podcasts. And they're like, what do you do? And I said, well, I do horror. They're like, oh, and if they love horror, they'll speak for me to me about 20 minutes on the subject. If they hate horror, they spend about 20 minutes telling me what they hate about horror. It's something that everybody is very passionate about. But I realize that most of the time, people who hate horror uh, judge all of it by the one movie that they hate, the one thing that they, they go to lowest common denominator. It's real simple to go to lowest common denominator. But some of the oldest stories, the second oldest story, as far as I'm concerned, if we have the original campfire with the original guys like me sitting around eating meat and uh, the fire's going and the, the first story is the elder going, Thank you so much for being here. You are all family. We are one unit. We thank you, God, for the, the heavens and thank you for the animals and all this stuff. That's the first one. The second story is whatever you do, don't go in the fucking woods. There's something in there that's going to kill you. Stay with us. We're safe. It's a cautionary tale. So we've had horror our entire life and it is perfect for allegory. It's perfect for metaphor. It allows us to speak about the big bad today that's happening right now without having that burnt tire smell of trying to convince somebody. Uh, I always love movies like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's literally a movie in the 50s, the 50s one. Then there's a 70s one, there's a 90s one. Uh, but the 50s one, you can literally read it in two 
opposite directions. It's either a polemic about communism or it's a polemic about McCarthyism, which are uh, completely against each other. The, the writer was a, uh, was a blacklisted writer. The director was a, uh, uh, a pretty right-wing fellow. Uh, he did a lot of really interesting movies himself, including Dirty Harry. Uh, and the two of them worked together perfectly to create this thing that was morally... Uh, it was ambiguous about its politics. It allowed you to read in whatever it was, but you could tell that it was about something. And I don't think horror has the ability, even shitty horror has the ability to not comment on what we're doing today because it has to know what pisses us off, has to know what freaks us out. And we're always going to be afraid of getting our eyes torn out and stuff like that. But there's always these things that happen uh, that you go like right after Abu Ghraib, you had all these movies like Hills Have Eyes and Hills Have Eyes too, where there's military people getting torn apart. And there's a whole thing about torture that's happening. Saw and all that stuff starts to happen. It's in our heads. We have an anxiety about it. It's not whether we're pro or, or, or against. It's the idea that we're anxious as a culture. And so it always hits on, you know, divorce. Uh, the exorcist can be kids out of control. Uh, Rosemary's baby is abortion. There's all this stuff that can be read into it. But you can also just sit there and enjoy the absorption of buckets of blood. There's nothing wrong with that either. And so horror is a magical kind of truly expressive art form that allows you to go to the lowest of the low and go to the highest of the high. And it's super broad in its appeal and super broad in what you can talk about. So as you can tell, I can talk. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I, I, I'm enjoying listening. That's perfect. Um, yeah, it definitely makes me feel a lot better. And and one of the things, going back to the shadow self, um, I've always felt like maybe I have a lot more dark voices in my head or dark thoughts. Um, and, and I was guessing other authors do as well. Do you think maybe they're just more in tune with it or more reflective uh, do, so do you think everyone maybe has these thoughts and emotions and we're just the only ones that are maybe brave enough to actually look at them, examine them? Yeah, well, I think there's, it's kind of like uh, cafeteria style. You, you can get anything you want at the cafeteria, but if you eat nothing but brownies, you're going to have a shitty day. Uh, and, uh, but I think that there's many ways to get around the menu, right? So I think we all have those dark thoughts. I think some people are petrified of those dark thoughts. Mm -hmm. They think that they've done something wrong. They have a maybe a belief system or, or, or something in place that can help them do a pathway that doesn't take them to where the books are and stuff like that, the writers. I think some of us are a little bit more sensitive. Uh, some of us don't get listened to. And when we don't get listened to, it comes to the surface and we find a way to express ourselves. Uh, I, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is I listened to a couple of your podcasts and I was fascinated by some of your backstory and why you were writing. And I was like, this guy's in my wheelhouse because this is what I talk about a lot is uh, I don't know how to articulate this stuff, but I feel better when I do. And mm -hmm. even as early as like eight, uh, I saw this movie. It was my, I have this thing on my podcast in the book called The First Kiss, which is uh, the, the movie or the book that just changed your life. Next thing you know, you're, you're addicted almost to this. You, you devote yourself to this passion. And it's not always a good experience. <laughs> like your first kiss, it could be really clumsy and shitty, but it has an impact. 
And so I had this one that was on cable when HBO first came out and cause I'm ancient uh, and uh, my parents had me over somebody's house and they had uh, this thing on and they had this movie. Don't look now, which the first five minutes is drowning a little child drowning in a pond and the parents are inside and it's shot in a way that no other horror movie that I ever saw at that time was shot. I mean, I watched the B movies of my dad's generation. I'm watching this handheld thing, this really freaky, visual thing that's going on and a church slide a slideshow of a church with they spill some alcohol on the slide and it starts to boil up and it looks like the devil coming out of the glass and all this stuff's hitting me as an eight-year-old i'm like what the fuck and you know i get it now i didn't articulate it at that moment but i felt better and i needed to watch it again but not after until i had three days complete nightmares waking up my dad waking me up because i'm having nightmares so it didn't end up being a happy moment but it became this calming moment because everything that was in that movie was kind of hitting on how i felt my parents are divorcing nobody's telling me what's going on it's ugly i'm in this religion that if you go to do divorce demons will come and get you they believe demons are real all this stuff is coming up and i'm eight so everybody that i believe in is seems to be lying to me or is, i don't know what's going to happen what do they do throw me in the in, in a wood pile or something who gets me and so thoroughly powerless thoroughly helpless and it's not the kid drowning that gets me it's they can't save her these parents can't, they, these parents are terrible. And I got it because that's what was inside my head the whole time. And so early on, I got this idea and I don't, like I said, I didn't articulate it, but I knew that I felt better mm -hmm. if I watched this stuff. I knew that I was attracted to the scary thing because I was a scared kid. Uh, I had a little bit of abuse in there uh, and all of that stuff kind of went away or I felt seen. Now, if someone mm -hmm. else is writing about it, it ain't just my problem. You know, somebody right. else came up with it. So uh, I don't know if that's an answer for you, but uh, I go well, on. It, I think that's, I mean, yeah, that that's huge for me. I think anytime you hear someone else feels the same way as you, just knowing that there's someone else. And so for it to be in a movie, it just makes it that much more real. Um, that makes a lot of sense. That was actually one of the next questions I had was, you know, when, when is a safe time to introduce horror to your kids? Like I, one of my good friends, a UFC fighter, uh, Ben Saunders, he was talking about how traumatized he was because he was left alone at like five uh, watching nonstop. I think it was Friday the 13th. And he watched like a full marathon. Parents were at work and he, he watched that. And I have my kids, they asked me like, my daughter wants to watch it and, you know, start getting into horror. I was always a little, probably more afraid, like, you know, maybe it was my early exposure that made me darker, but now thinking about it and, and, and hearing you talk, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, that that's not the case. You know, maybe, you know, I, I'm not going to throw R-rated movies on for my seven-year-old <laughs> yet. Um, but that, uh, yeah, so what, what would your take be on, you know, uh, an early introduction to horror? Like, when is, when is too early? Yeah, boy, I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. What I do say is that there's court appointed horror and then there's horror that you find yourself. And the thing that matters is the thing you find for yourself. So I watched the early version of the thing from another world with my dad because it was his favorite and them with the giant ants and none of the i mean the ants scared me because uh, i had to go down in my basement every so often i thought there might be a giant ant but you know horror movies don't scare me 
those thoughts, whatever it was that was hitting, they don't, they can't hurt me. They scare me, but they can't hurt me, literally mm-hmm. hurt me. And so as a child, you don't necessarily get that completely. Uh, so there is that danger. Uh, but I think that you have very little say, my friend, on when your children decide that it's time to watch horror because we're already setting it up, right? We're setting it up as the forbidden thing. You know, it's the thing that's not supposed to be seen. So who doesn't want to touch the thing that's not supposed to be touched? And so it already has this thing. There's going to be a certain group of people who they hear that and they go, fine, I don't need to ever get near that. Show me, you know, where I need to go. And then there's the other half that's kind of like, well, and maybe not half, but guys like me who are like, even though I'm scared, I need to, I'm so curious, I need to find out. And uh, I think it will be something that they shouldn't watch. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's what it is. Uh, you know, everybody's like, Oh my God, what, uh, what about advice? I, I saw this evil dead when I was seven. I said, well, that sounds like that was the time you were supposed to see the evil dead. How'd you feel? Oh, I never want to see a horror movie again. Then that is your answer. <laughs> you got yeah. exactly what you're supposed to get out of it. I always say that horror is, uh, it serves a purpose. It's like the, the Joseph Campbell going into the woods thing. You know, and, uh, you know, the dog disappears and he's like, well, I must be in that place where I don't need a dog anymore. And for horror, horror is very specific in what it's there for. It's not there to share half its sandwich with you at the playground. Mm -hmm. It has a you come to it. It is the oracle that says you want to be scared. Here we go. This is what can be out there for you. And, uh, and it, so it has, it's very specific. It's not, you know, you wouldn't go to a horror movie to, to learn about uh, civics, you know, or how to dance unless it's a horror movie that has dancing in it. But the thing is, it has a very specific reason to exist. And I think science fiction has a very specific reason to exist. I think uh, comedy has another very specific reason to exist. And I think they're important. Genre is super important because it hits on these aspects where we don't have to be esoteric, where uh, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with feeding the mind. I love feeding the mind. I think all of those genre can, but there's also a spot where there's no shame in being able to attach yourself to your emotions and, and find yourself there. But yeah, I think they're always going to be ugly. They're, uh, the, the, the success of a horror film is that it scares the kid who sees it first. My, one of my favorite stories is hearing that Night of the Living Dead, the original George Romero one, back then, horror movies are considered kiddie stuff. So that movie was at a Saturday matinee in New York city. They played it with some other kid movie. So they're watching and these guys are eating people and stuff. So kids were traumatized and Roger Ebert, the old, uh, uh, the late uh, critic wrote a big scathing article about these kids are coming out. Like it's been Vietnam and all this stuff because they were horrified, but that's where people were at that time. They didn't think that horror had any kind of bite to it yet. So many of the, I'm sure, sure those kids there wasn't like this news article on 60 minutes 20 years later everybody committed suicide that saw that no there was nothing like that so i think a lot of people probably uh had an experience that they went i need to get a little bit more of this and the other people are like i have a funny story this is why i don't watch horror because i went to a kiddie show and they showed this freaking thing and so i think it has it's experiential and I think it's, uh, I think it's an important thing. It's like skinning your knee. You don't want your kid to skin their knee. You don't want your kid to get burnt. You don't want any of that stuff to happen. You want them to get lost coming home one day. All that 
pretty much has to happen on small doses. And I think right. that's the thing about horror is that it's always a safe, small dose. There are some movies I would never put in front of a kid. I think things, there are certain things that are emotionally too much, even for some adults mm-hmm. uh, and maybe me <laughs> and too much truth sometimes in, in, in those horror movies. Uh, but for the most part, I think, uh, I think a good skill, scare and uh, a, a good allegory of you know finding out what there is in the world that you are kind of attached to uh and see if uh, it works for you is healthy yeah so do you find different types of people liking different types of horror like because i i recently I, I don't watch much horror at all uh i <laughs> don't like it uh like i don't know i i love writing it I don't know why I stopped watching it, but I recently watched uh, Lovecraft Country, and oh, yeah. I thought it was just like brilliant writing. I I, I loved everything, but it, it was also disgusting, and I had a very hard time watching the really really graphic scenes. Like mm. I did not like watching the people losing their skin, and like I would even turn to the side and like I just don't wow. need to watch it. So I don't know why I have such a strong reaction, but I was wondering if you if you've kind of noticed any kind of personality types that like certain things and don't like others. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say I'm, I, I, you're adorable. I would have never thought that from, from listening to your stories. Right. I, I was like, Oh, this guy's watched August underground and Serbian film and stuff like that. Nope. It's like, no, no. So it's like, it's great that you have this, uh, this attraction to something that you also have a, a repulsion to. And I think that's a very vital and volatile and very creative space to be in. I do think that I, I talk with friends about this, that there's almost like a Venn diagram that you can get a, or a spot where everybody kind of links together. So there are people at horror uh, conventions that are going to have tattoos. There's going to be heavy metal. They're going to be into like death metal. Uh, There's going to be kink. Maybe Uh, there's going to be uh, fantasy and horror, but mostly like sword and sorcery kind of things. And those, uh, every one of those, there are people that would never touch horror, but there's one spot where they touch all of those things. And that's usually my people. (laughs) It's usually people that, that really get into it in a way that they want to talk about it a lot and they can talk about it for long periods of time they have passion and their passions override and things. Uh, I hate to generalize, but at the same point, I will say that I think uh, you'll find that there are people who, like I said before, have a, a, a great second act going. Their life is just feeling really good. They have a tendency to go towards some of the darker stuff. And it may be that they're working through something or they just really enjoy that. They're not there anymore, uh, whatever it is. And uh, there are other people, the intellectual folk that I know that uh, believe in the shining itis of the world. Uh, so it's like uh, they, they love, if they will talk about any horror film, they'll only talk about the shining. Cause that's like uh, author artist approved. <laughs> You're you, you have a certain cachet if you can speak about the shining. And so there's a, a lot of people who have that there's people who love ghost stories more than anything else there. And women who uh, I think one of the more interesting things is there's these, horror films that came out of Italy called Giallo films. Uh, and uh, they're really graphically violent. And they're usually, you could make a point that they're misogynistic. I mean, if somebody wanted to call them misogynistic, I really couldn't argue with them. And I ask women why they watch that. And it's like, I live this shit. This is like deodorant for me. And so they're like, we get it in a way that you don't get it. 
And uh, it's a dance. It's like that Mephisto dance. And there's a bunch of different reasons for it. I think what I like to say more than anything else is that there's a big umbrella uh, about horror. There's millions of tributaries to the River Nile, if the horror is that, because uh, there's something out there for everybody. There is the slow burn thriller. Uh, there is the ghost story. There's the satanic story. There's a serial killer story. There's a supernatural monster. There's the in space, no one can hear you scream story. All of those things uh, are out there. And some of us watch them all, but there's always the ability to just watch the one type that you like if you want to take the chance to to get out there and, and see it if if the idea of being scared is fun for you i think a lot of times horror is like the scoville level for peppers some of us just want to like lose our shit <laughs> eating a habanero or a ghost pepper i am that kind of person i'll go to a, i went to a coffee shop and it's like ghost pepper latte give me that some and it's like other people won't get anywhere near that but uh, i have that weird thing of like i don't mind feeling a little bit uncomfortable i have tattoos i don't mind feeling a little bit uncomfortable you obviously uh, have a, a fighting background uh, i've I never did it professionally. I was a blatant amateur, uh, but there was that whole thing of uh, uh, there's a certain spot of you where you go, I am okay with a certain level of discomfort mm -hmm. to experience something, to go to the adventure, to get past something I'm scared of. I was always scared to fight. So when I did fight, it was like, I survived, you know, this is amazing. And, and so I think there's parts of that in, watching horror films going to a mosh pit at a slayer concert oh, yeah. stuff like that yeah i mean i uh, still <laughs> yeah um now do you get do you get the same experience reading a book compared to watching a movie do you oh yeah what a great question I love that question because I, I, I've done an entire podcast and I have a chapter in my book all about reading because that's the first place that you probably get to be corrupted mm -hmm. because uh, like my dad was functionally illiterate. So he looked at books as homework. When I got a library card, I started in the section, the science fiction section, and the horror section. I just started getting this. Whoa. Like he was like, you're too scared of a kid to go see Jaws. Why don't you read it? And there's like five sex scenes in that that are really pretty graphic. He had no idea. So I'm hooked on, on books, but books allow me to really rattle myself with my own imagination. It can take 20 minutes to read a horrible sequence. You know, I, I just read uh, uh, Paul Tremblay's uh, The Cabin at the End of the World. And the end of that is 50 pages. And it is so hard. For, uh, one person with a gun, another person who doesn't have one in the rain, and we don't know what's happening in the woods around them. And I'm riveted for, what, three fifty pages? That's like an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. And you can't do that in a film. A film hits you on a different visceral level. Uh, but there's something to the horror writing that uh, the reading of that, that allows you to go to a depth, you're in it, you're tasting it, you're smelling it, and you're dictating it. And I think that's the big difference is I can be taken out of a horror movie if I just don't like the way that the lead character looks, right? Uh, all the bad guys look like my uncle sometimes, <laughs> all that stuff in, in the books. And so uh, you, you can personalize things in a way. Uh, I remember reading Stephen King's Misery when it first came out. Here's a book that by page 80, everything that I expected to happen in the thing happened. 
I'm like, holy Christ, there's like 400 more pages. What's going to happen in this? And I was absolutely transfixed on a guy in a bed and a woman walking around him. And the sadism that was in that book was incredible. And so uh, you really get this rich thing. I, 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 I hope that everybody is a book reader because it just opens your mind and it lets you slow down a little bit. And there's something about when a scene actually scares you, like the original William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. There was a thing that I read there that haunted me for a long time and it wasn't in the movies. And I was like, man, that was something that smeared me in a way. And that doesn't go away because you are in this long dance, you know? And uh, so a book does this thing that horror movies can't, but horror movies also are this expressive art form that takes in all different arts, like any film takes in every art. There's, there's clothing that needs to be made costumes. There's lighting. You need to know lights. You need to know painting, you need to know photography. You need to know sound. And you put all of those art forms that all of those express something in us and you put them all in one place. Yeah. You're going to get a pretty big impact when it works. Mm -hmm. So when it works, it's an amazing, wonderful roller coaster. But uh, I, I love uh, the, the slow burn of a book. That's awesome. Um, now, before we go into your short story, so how much do you enjoy writing fiction? Is it is it important to you at all? Is it something you just dabble in? What where are you at with fiction? <laughs> that's that's a great question. I, I uh, used to write a lot, and then I kind of got out of fiction uh, because I didn't feel I had any ideas. It was the the hardest thing was getting the ideas. And what happened was I started realizing that talking about the art was an art in and of itself. And that's where nonfiction kind of came in. And I realized that I, I was brought up to be a really good arguer. So I found that, uh, that the skills of debate helped in, in film. And one of the reasons that I love uh, talking about horror as an art form, uh, as well as a bucket of blood thing, is that I grew up in a time when The Exorcist was in the movie theaters and it was up for an Oscar. So I, uh, back in that time, people weren't like, ah, fuck critics. People believed uh, that critics and film had a power. And so it was kind of like, let's define what's going on. Let's take a look at the, the deeper issues in movies. What are they trying to tell us? And so I put that to horror as well. I saw no reason to not. Uh, and then, you know, times change and, and uh, people's thoughts about uh, critical assessment change. Uh, but uh, when it comes to writing uh, fiction, I love doing it, but it's so hard for me. Some people can just flip it out. I find uh, every word is a fight. But boy, do I love telling the stories. And I have a little book of uh, ideas that I have for stories, including sometimes talking about stories themselves. And uh, so I'm, I'm impressed that just by seeing how many books are behind you as of right now on the screen, uh, that you obviously have the ability to have that creative flow come right out. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm saying all that. And yet every one of my podcasts, well, 90% of my podcasts are my own material where I do an essay and I take five movies and put them together. And every one of those is written and every one of them is around 10,000 words. So it's not like, you know, that's impressive. That, yeah. I couldn't, I could not do that. Yeah, that, that that's awesome. Well, they're, they're, uh, well if, my feet. You, if you ever do get the urge, uh, maybe you'd be interested in it. Try not to die. I'm, I'm, I, I love the, it's the series I have. I just did one with uh, John Polisano, uh, trying to die in the pandemic. Uh, 
I'm trying to die at grandma's house. We had time to die in Brightside. But I have a whole series. They're just like, go oh, choose your own adventure books. Oh, uh, such yeah, a great idea. Things. Yeah. Like if you choose wrong, you die. Uh, and I have readers tell me like it causes a lot of anxiety when they get to those moments to choose because they know there's a good chance they're going to die. So great. What a great idea. I love it. So they're they're a lot of fun. Uh, They're pretty easy to write. They're pretty quick to write. Uh, You're awesome. Yeah, we we would definitely get along. And so keep that, keep that in the back of your mind. If if you ever decide you'd like to try it, uh, check one out. Uh, Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I I mean, that's how my brain worked for the first time. 30 years of my life. Every morning was waking up, trying not to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, man, I wish I could keep talking, but I need to go do some brain stuff. I got to take my family to some uh, my neuro, neuro feedback session. Uh, ah. I got a lot of traumatic brain injury stuff. I'm still working out. Um, I'm, that's the, actually, I'm working on nonfiction right now with that book. And man, I just do not like writing nonfiction. Um, it's rough. It's rough. Right? I mean, it's, you have to be honest. And that's one of the tough parts. And that's one of the things I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I was like going, uh, you know, I, I don't know, am I going to be a good match uh, for, for, for the show? And uh, I was like, you know, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. Your, your press thing said something like he speaks his mind. And I'm like, everybody speaks their fucking mind. When somebody says they speak their mind, what am I getting here? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was trying to show up. I, I really, nah, I don't, I, I don't really. No, you're, you're you're awesome. You're a sweetheart, and you've got this wonderful past. But one of the things that really impressed me was that you were literally where money where mouth is. You had a serious brain injury, and you were writing your way back. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like superb. And that's what I talk about. Uh, you know, people are like, hey, you don't really believe your your shit about. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what I was like in 1990. Uh, it was not a good time. And uh, I was literally not talking to people. And then I just happened to walk into a, a video store that had the right stuff on the wall and the guy who would talk. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm being friendly with people again. And I am compelled. I realize how lonely I've been. So I keep going back to this video store and they finally give me a job. <laughs> and they tell me, you seem to know a lot about these movies. Why don't you just sit here and, and talk movies? And, and so uh, that was amazing to me how something that most people would be very indifferent about kind of helped me. And I think that everybody has their own baton that they can pass. Uh, Everybody has the same, uh, a life preserver they need to put on, but mine just happened to be horror and being able to write through uh, a traumatic brain injury, especially, I mean, it looks like you're, you're, you don't shy away from the MMA days and I'm probably, I'm maybe reading in, but I would assume that that probably had a little bit to do with some of the stuff that's happened to your mind, right? Yeah, that that definitely contributed, especially uh, I got back into it to do my book on MMA fighters and I started sparring and taking a lot more damage. So I'm sure that that definitely contributed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of being able to, that's the, the honesty. What I found with my book uh, was that people responded because they didn't know quite what it was. They're like, well, it's kind of like an essay. It's kind of like a memoir, but it doesn't get too maudlin. And then it has this like inspirational kind of weird thing to it. And there's comedy said, it's a weird book. And I said, well, yeah, it's weird because I'm weird. But the thing is, I, I needed to be honest about where I was and how I feel about things and how awkward I can be and how awkward being a horror fan can be. And people respond to that. Uh, nobody wants to read a dry academic piece. 
And there's a lot of that out there. Most of the horror books, they're, they're just really, let me tell you about this. And I, I, I talk about how I went to see Rocky with my dad. And one of the things that I realized seeing it in 1976 was that that was the power of film. I watched people who were downbeaten. I was in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, coal mine place. And I watched people waiting for the shoe to drop on rock. They're like, this is going to end bad because everything ended bad by then. And when he knocks Apollo Creed down, adult men jump in the air. We're up for the last half hour of that movie. Nobody's sitting and they're running. Guys are running down the street and that bing bong of the, uh, the bell. I'm feeling it. I'm like, Oh my God. And that's what we look for. It's a tent revival thing that all horror has the possibility of doing. And when you have an inspirational moment like that, and people are like, why are you talking about Rocky in a horror book? I said, cause fuck you. That's why and it's a, this is part of the story. And uh, the thing is, I don't see a difference. We put up these labels like horror and science fiction. It's great, but it's a velvet rope, right? There's part of us that are elitist horror film guys that are like, Oh, if you haven't seen the original, the, thing you're you're uh, trash then there's the other people who go ah my god horror movies that's that's for knuckle draggers that's all caused by the label right and uh, if we didn't have the label uh i think we'd uh, be a little bit better off on it but you know there's always going to be i think it can never be that popular if it becomes that popular i think it kind of loses its edge it needs yeah, to be the angry guy in the in the woods <laughs> yeah yeah no i i've always been like that um, man, well, this has been incredible. I, dude, I, I could talk with you for hours and definitely want to do this again. Um, so sure. thank you so much for coming on. Now, where should people go? It's uh, hellbentfulhorror.com. Is that where they can yes. find all your stuff? You can find uh, links to my book uh, as well as uh, all the podcasts are there at hellbentforhorror.com. I'm on Hellbent for Horror uh, Facebook page. Uh, there's also Hellbent Horror uh, on Twitter and Instagram is Hellbent for Horror as well. So you can find uh, the podcast on all the places. It's also on uh, Audible and Spotify. So it gets around a little bit. There is a YouTube uh, video page. I'm trying to do more of where people can see my ugly mug, but I keep getting into like movie making. I can't just sit there for an hour and i have to have pictures so it, it takes a long time sometimes to do these things and if you want uh, if you like the story which i guess you're about to play it's called wound uh it's in a uh anthology book called um Me medium chill and you can find that on amazon and uh, it's a bunch of different writers and uh, they're horror based. And so uh, if anybody likes that, there, I think there's a link to that as well on my Facebook or my, uh, my webpage. Very cool. And guys, if you haven't done it, check out Screaming for Pleasure. The reviews on it are awesome. I was reading through those earlier. It looks incredible after talking with you. Definitely going to check it out. Um, so thanks once again for being on and uh, we'll play Wound right now. And then you and I will talk soon. All right. Thanks again, everybody. It's been a All pleasure. Right. Wound by S.A. Bradley. It wasn't until his third try that Leonard realized the reason his apartment key wasn't going in the lock was because the blood on his hands made it difficult for him to maintain a proper grip on it. If you panic, it's all over. Slow the fuck down. Leonard held his breath, pressed his tongue against the back of his teeth, and focused on the thin lock aperture. 
The key hit home, and the lock turned. He looked back down the hall of his apartment building. He had just limped through a gauntlet of metal doors and peepholes. It was after 3 a.m. Nothing moved. Leonard looked down at the cheap, dark, blue nylon carpet stretched down the length of the hallway. It was designed to hide stains, but a halo of dark crimson surrounded his blood-drenched left sneaker. How bad is the trail I left? The carpet, the elevator, the foyer, the sidewalk. Millions of things to hide. Millions of things that require an alibi. But Leonard knew that none of that mattered as much as stopping himself from bleeding out from the bullet hole in his leg. The sock he held against the wound was already soaked through and dripping. The belt around his upper thigh slowed the flow some but any clotting was ripped away when he was forced to flee on foot from the scene of the crime. He pushed open his apartment door and slid inside. Leonard fumbled for the wall switch in the dark. When the lights finally came on, he saw how much gore was smeared on the wall from performing this simple act. Up until that moment, he managed his terror by rationalizing that the extent of his injury was only as bad as the drenched pant leg, seeing the familiar confines of his home choked with red, coated with his plasma, crushed any illusions he held, the apartment filled with a humid metallic smell of fresh blood. There was no exit wound. Leonard could feel the obscene lump of metal nestled deep in his flesh, and the sweats hit him instantaneously. There was no going to a hospital after what he did. The gravity of that thought made Leonard woozy. This was dire. The next few minutes were crucial. As Leonard hobbled quietly towards the bathroom, all he could think was, how could this have possibly gone so fucking wrong? It was a night he had planned and replayed in his mind for nearly ten years. This was the most important moment of his life. More important than the day he was able to walk out of the physical therapy department instead of being wheeled out. More important than when his psychiatrist cleared him to leave his trauma recovery center and return home. It was even more important than the day he bought that Ruger Blackhawk with the serial numbers filed off from a street entrepreneur. All those moments, which others might call victories, were merely steps in service of tonight. The night Leonard would murder the man who nearly killed him a decade ago. The man, Winston Wilson Dupree, didn't know Leonard existed until the moment right before he brought a crowbar down on the top of Leonard's skull, turning it into four daggers that stabbed into his brain. It was a low-tech liquor store robbery where Dupree threatened to beat the attendant to death unless he emptied the register. Leonard walked into the store to buy smokes at the worst possible moment. All he remembered was a pair of wide eyes and then an impossibly strong flash of white spots of light and the sound of two bricks scratching together between his ears. Right after he heard that sound, he fell to the dirty linoleum floor, face first, Unable to move, unable to close his eyes. They didn't even close when his own blood filled them. Now, Leonard turned on the bright light in his bathroom and grabbed the sink to steady himself. His left foot was going numb, and he couldn't risk falling on the tile floor. 
he might never be able to get back up. Don't look at your face in the bathroom mirror, he told himself. You don't want to see how pale you are. He reached for the suture kit sitting on the tank of the toilet. He purchased the kit online just to prove to himself that he had thought of everything, but he never envisioned needing it. It stood on his sink in its absurd protective wrapper. Leonard lowered himself slowly on the toilet seat and tried to open the shrink wrap, but his hands would never be dry enough. Instead, he chewed on the plastic seam until the wrapping finally tore. An instructional CD fell to the floor with a thin clank. This isn't fair. This isn't fucking fair at all, Leonard said to himself over and over again. He remembered saying the same thing in the employee's toilet of that liquor store. He was cradled by the weeping owner who prayed in Farsi and dressed Leonard's head with a linen towel roll from an ancient dispenser. He remembered that there came a moment when the fear left him, and he found a bittersweet calm in the realization that it was almost over. He was inexplicably overcome with a sense of gratitude for everything that happened in his life. He gained acceptance for the universe and his place in it. That didn't last long. He said all the right things at his survivors of violent crime support group. He knew full well that the counselor would ask leading questions around every anniversary of the incident to see if Leonard would be triggered and need more supervision. Leonard acted like Dupree's imprisonment gave him closure. He even kept attending the support group regularly after he was cleared just to keep the illusion of his spiritual growth intact. Leonard knew that the crime that nearly killed him was unexceptional in the eyes of the courts, and that meant that the process afterwards was a series of check marks and boxes. As long as those boxes were filled without deviation, the unremarkable tragedy would fade from judicial and civic memory. And Leonard did everything he could to make himself and the incident forgettable. Leonard worked so hard to pass himself off as a grateful survivor who was willing to move on with his life that, when Dupree's murder went horribly wrong, it felt like the cruelest blow of them all. Dupree was dead, of that Leonard was sure. He had stuck his Ruger under the man's chin while they both lay bleeding in an alley. He watched the top of Dupree's head disintegrate when Leonard pulled the trigger. But the fumbling, chaotic attack that preceded it went so wrong that it robbed him of any of his satisfaction. Winston Wilson Dupree, inmate number 145731, was easy to track. The online prisoner locator informed Leonard about Dupree's parole. After that, a careful search on social media sites and a catfishing expedition gave Leonard all he needed. The promise of soiled panties in the mail got him a location. Leonard surprised Dupree in an alley. He had the loaded gun pointed at the man. Leonard thought his victim might raise his hands, maybe plead for his life. He didn't count on Dupree shouting and becoming a moving target, weaving erratically around the width of the alley. Leonard also didn't count on the kick of the weapon when it fired, or how loud it would be in a narrow alley surrounded by brick and sheet metal. Even though he aimed at Dupree's chest, the revolver's kickback raised the trajectory of the bullet. It tore into the man's left trapezius muscle and shattered his clavicle. 
The injury stopped Dupree in his tracks, but the explosive sound of the gunshot momentarily stunned Leonard. The violent recoil of the weapon twisted his wrist and made him look down in shock. That frozen moment was enough for Dupree to tackle him and to try to knock the gun free. In a flash, Leonard was on his side on the ground, with Dupree straddling him and trying to grab the Ruger. Leonard kicked his legs to buck the man off of him. Dupree had his hand on the pistol and tried to push it down and away from his body, but Leonard pulled the trigger out of reflex. The bullet blew through Dupree's hand and then tore through the man's scrotum and wrecked him and then came to rest deep in Leonard's leg. It ended with shit and blood and death. Three deafening shots. It took too long. As Leonard opened the suture kit and saw the scalpel and the skin hooks and the rat tooth tissue forceps, he wondered if he had the courage to do what he needed to do. When he initially looked at the hole in his leg in the harsh light of his apartment elevator, he nearly fainted. The torn flesh at the edges of the hole swelled like lips, and the skin peeled away with hairs still sticking out of it. But the worst was looking at the hole, the absence that poured out his lifeblood. He had placed a sock over the wound, and that was the last time he looked at it. Now, here he was, preparing to slice into his flesh, to pull it open and probe into the wrecked mass of nerves and meat to remove the bullet and save his life. His mind flashed on a video he watched where a spider was removed from a person's ear canal and he gagged at the memory. Leonard's entire leg was now numb, but he knew that wouldn't last. He needed to act fast, and yet he couldn't bring himself to move the sock and look at the wound. You stupid fuck, this is it. Dupree doesn't get to end you today. The police don't get to end you today. Shit on them all. Do what needs to be done, you useless fuck. Leonard gave himself a standard three count. One, this isn't fair. Two, fuck you, Dupree. Three, fuck me. Leonard pulled the sock away, and he grabbed the scissors and cut his pants at the entry hole. He pulled back the blood-soaked denim to allow room for surgery. What he saw made him forget to breathe. The wound was gone. The skin was coated in blood, but he couldn't see the hole. It's covered over with blood, Leonard thought, and he grabbed the tiny bottle of isopropyl alcohol from the kit. He braced himself for an unholy sting, but there was none. The alcohol ate away the dried blood, and all that was left was the clean, unmarked flesh of his thigh. Leonard grabbed his pants leg with both hands and tore it open. Nothing. He ran his hands around his leg, which was still numb, but there was no wound to be found. He started to feel like he might scream. I don't know what's happening, but it's still in there. The bullet is fucking in there. Leonard brought the scalpel to rest on the bleached skin of his leg. It felt distant, like he was watching another video. He slid the blade backwards and the flesh separated with a pink sigh. And then the blood started to pour out. He moved the blade perpendicular to the first cut and sliced himself open again. It was 
At the moment, he plunged the forceps into the center of his incisions that Leonard felt a sharp, burning pain in the lower right-hand side of his back, a pain so intensely focused that it had a shape like a bean. And then he felt the fabric of his shirt there getting wet. He reached his hand back and touched the wet spot. When he pulled his hand back, it was slick with fresh blood. It was a much darker shade of crimson than what flowed from his leg. The pain in Leonard's back intensified. It came from deep inside him, and he swore he could feel something important shut down, and his body was in shock. Leonard got up from the toilet and staggered towards the bathroom door. There was a full-length mirror nailed to the back of it, and he swung the door to see his reflection. Don't look at your face in the mirror, he told himself. You don't want to see how pale you are. The back of his shirt was coated in blood. Leonard slowly raised the shirt to expose the skin. There it was. Leonard heard himself moan in terror as he looked into that familiar hole, exposing the meat under his dermis, oozing out blood black as oil. He staggered back to retrieve the scalpel and the forceps. Leonard knew that the position and angle was going to make the extraction so much harder, but he knew the bullet was still inside him and he needed to get it out. This was dire. The next few minutes were crucial. He returned to the mirror and turned around and raised his shirt. It was gone. The skin above the location of his right kidney was bloody but unbroken. He'd have to be extra careful with his cuts so he wouldn't cause any more damage to the organ than the bullet had already done. This time he could feel the cold temperature of the blade as it entered him. The pain of the incision came shortly after, as if it rode on the blood that started to pour from him. And suddenly, Leonard was seized with an unstoppable need to look at his face in the mirror. He was compelled to raise his chin and slowly fix his gaze to stare into his own eyes. It was an action as inexplicable as the wave of gratitude he felt in that liquor store bathroom a decade ago, but no less intense. Leonard's face was not pale white as he expected it to be. It was gray. His skin was a color of clay and was stretched tightly across his cheekbones. And that made the small pink hole, which slowly blossomed like a lotus between his eyes, all the more vivid. The End This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 